We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Speaking of the dignity of humanity, it may appear that the Bernie Sanders populist left uh, phenomenon is something new, but it's really not. There is a long tradition of left history in America. And I'm very pleased today we have as guest Michael Kazin, who, oh, I read his book, uh, A Godly Hero, about William Jennings Bryan quite a while ago, and he teaches history at Georgetown University. His new book is American Dreamers, How the Left Changed a Nation, and it's published by Knopf. Michael, thank you very much for being with us today. It's good to be here. You have argued that the the quote, the effectiveness of radical social protests should not be judged by their failure to achieve significant political power, but by their ability to catalyze mass movements that affect mainstream politics. And clearly that has been done throughout the history of these currently United States. And the book chooses certain aspects of the history of the left. I imagine it must have been difficult to wade through all those different aspects. Uh, For example, I didn't see a mention of the anti-nuclear movement, Huey Long's populism, and it must have been difficult to choose the subjects. How did you do that? Well, I was trying to choose uh, mass movements, uh, which I think had an important impact, not just in American politics, but on how Americans understand how to make a decent society, how to make a moral society, and how to expand a notion of rights, how to expand a notion of collective responsibility. And, uh, you know, the, the left is a many-headed uh, many, uh, hydra, yes. uh, but I think certain heads have been more important than others. So I did pick abolitionism, the radical labor movement, uh, the Socialist Party, the populists, the communists, the new left. And the last chapter, there's a sort of variety of different groups, which I call more campaigns than, than a single movement, because I don't think there's one. There, I don't think there's really been one center of the left in the last uh, 30, 40 years. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, you were inspired by the rather unlikely source. It's not Karl Marx. It's not Eugene Debs. Dr. Seuss. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, I've been inspired by a lot of people, but a lot of people have mentioned this first. First sentence of the book where I say the book was inspired by Dr. Zeus. What I meant by that was about 11 years ago now when George W. Bush uh, became president with the help of the Supreme Court. Um, I was sort of depressed, as uh, a lot of people on the left uh, were, and a lot of Democrats, uh, not all on the far left, certainly. And I started uh, rereading Dr. Zeus because I've always loved Dr. Zeus. I read him to my kids. My mother read him uh, to me. And I began to notice something, which which is pretty obvious, I guess, to anybody who's read him, is that uh, Dr. Zeus was a left-winger. He uh, 
not in all his books, but some of his most famous books, like Yodel the Turtle, uh, the Butter Battle book, the Lorax, um, and several others. He's really, in many ways, articulating some of the most important themes uh, of the left uh, that have been there since uh, the early 19th century, racial equality, uh, uh, economic uh, justice with Yodel the Turtle, <laughs> for example, uh, anti-nuclear, anti-warfare with the Butter Battle book, and of course, he does it with great wit, and he's been very influential. So, in a sense, I started with him because I, I began to think about the ways in which um, the American left has been more successful at changing American culture than at changing American structures of power. Interesting. It certainly seems to be uh, the case. Uh, we are talking with author uh, Michael Kazin about his new book, American Dreamers, How the Left Changed a Nation. And... Uh, key to reading this book and, and looking at uh, the history of the left is a definition of the term left. Your definition of the left-wing goal is a radically egalitarian transformation of society. How, how strong within the left, whatever that means, has been the tenet of economic egalitarianism? And before you answer that, wouldn't that doom it to failure? in that nearly all Americans believe they can get ahead that, and that there is a lot of evidence that people can get ahead. And so uh, a radical egalitarian uh, transformation uh, seems sort of like uh, starting off with a, uh, a difficulty. That's true, but uh, and, and certainly the left has not succeeded uh, in, in uh, convincing Americans to... Uh, that they live in a terribly unjust society, or that they, uh, or that society should be transformed in the way uh, the left wants to transform, but that doesn't mean they haven't had influence. Uh, for example, what you could call the anti-monopoly movement, in the late 19th century into the early 20th century, mm-hmm. which was spurred by some of the people I talk about in the book: um, Edward Bellamy, uh, author of *Looking Backward*, this great utopian novel; Henry George, author of the most popular economics book in the 19th century, uh, *Progress and Poverty* were among the figures who, who uh, helped to convince Americans that at a time of uh, rapid economic change in the late 19th and early 20th century, that this, these, the, the economic uh, prosperity of the country was being quite unequally shared. And so they helped to, to uh, I think, inspire, is the right word for it, uh, a lot of uh, labor unionists, uh, small farmers, um, urban dwellers, uh, uh, middle-class women, to uh, demand a more equal society, to demand uh, corporate regulation, to to open up space for labor unions to operate more freely, uh, and uh, for settlement houses to to um, to sprout up and uh, begin to help uh, immigrants, especially in the cities, to transform their lives. So, so yes, of course, the ultimate end of some sort of uh, democratic socialism was not something the left uh, succeeded in <laughs> in achieving, of course, in this country, but. Same time, I think a lot of the economic reforms that we associated with the Progressive Era and later on with the New Deal um, were in many ways inspired by the writings of uh, and the agitation of people on the left. Well, I want to go through a bit of American history in just a few minutes. But you mentioned democratic socialism, and uh, my old friend uh, Abby Hoffman said a long time <laughs> ago, "Isms get schisms and go to wasms." pretty quick. <laughs> and I think, you know, socialism, has is that basic to the left? I would think there'd be a lot of people on the left who don't consider themselves 
socialist? Or, or is that uh, absolutely at the foundation of what it means to be left? No, I don't think it is. Uh, in Europe, in m- many parts of the world, most people would identify the left with a socialist tradition. But one of the sure. things that makes the American left different, and I make this clear, I think, in the book, is is I think you can uh, say a lot of people on the left who were you know, sometimes influenced by socialism, but certainly were not themselves socialists, like the abolitionists, for example, like right. uh, radical feminists uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century, even the 1960s, right. uh, like uh, populists with a capital P, um, like a lot of people in the New Left, actually, who uh, were influenced by socialism, but uh, wouldn't have called themselves socialism. Mm-hmm. That would have seemed like something that was attached to the old left. So right. in that sense, I think um, many... Many uh, American radicals have been radical Democrats with a small d, uh, without necessarily believing that you wanted uh, you know, government uh, control of the uh, major, uh, major uh, uh, parts of the economy, which is what socialists in Europe uh, certainly stood for. And going back to the beginning of this country, the founding period, the, right there at the beginning there was a struggle between the aristocrats who wanted independence, basically so that they could get a greater share of the loot, and there was the producer class, and everybody fought together in the War of Independence. But that struggle between creditors and debtors has been inherent, it seems to me, in who we are, and certainly continues to this day. Is not, you know, some people on the right have said that people on the left are not patriotic, they're un American. But isn't the vision of a truly democratic republic, as sought by about half the founders, really consistent? with the democratic left vision for America. Oh, I think it is. I think it is. In fact, uh, my next book, what I'm doing research on right now, is a book about uh, competing uh, definitions and meanings of Americanism, uh, ah. uh, especially in the period when everyone identified with, uh, uh, with the American ideals between the Civil War and the 1960s. Um, and, yes, I, I definitely think this is an important strand in, in the history of the left. When the left has when people on the left have, have railed against American ideals, when they've, when they've said that American ideals are nothing but a sham and we shouldn't even talk about them, they've, they've, they've failed to oh, influence yeah. uh, many Americans. So I think when, when the left has been uh, successful, to, to, the, to the degree it has been successful, it, it's done so by identifying with American ideals, which, if you think about them, are quite utopian in many ways, as utopian as any uh, socialist utopia. After all, talking about uh, liberty and equality for all, talking about opportunity for all. I mean, th- these are impossible to, <laughs> impossible to uh, achieve uh, ideals, but, and, yet, and yet they are uh, in many ways wonderful ideals, which, of course, attract people not just in this country, but elsewhere in the world, too. Well, one of my favorite quotes from graffiti on the walls in France at the uprising there in 1968 was, be realistic, demand the impossible. Yes, that's true of any of any visionary in politics. Sometimes those visionaries are on the right, like uh, Ayn Rand, <laughs> and sometimes they're on the left, like the people I talk about. And what happens is real change after demanding the impossible. Well, you, you, the abolitionists are certainly one of the early sparks of the left, as talked about in your book, American Dreamers, How the Left Change a Nation. You, should, you note that early on, abolitionists rejected only the selfish ethic of a market society, not the individual joys of consumption. So doesn't that, I thought that was a a, a good observation, doesn't that explain a lot about the American character as to why the the, the real, you know, socialist or whatever left never connected? Because, you know, we do like the individual joys of consumption. 
Oh, definitely, definitely, and most people in the world do. After all, I mean, look what, that's true. What's happened in China under a communist party? Oh, you know, for sure. one of the reasons that economy has boomed so much, of course, is that uh, there's great hunger for consumption, even though even though Chinese are, are not able to enjoy <laughs> the kind of consumption that uh, people around the world who, who buy the products they make are able to enjoy. But but they certainly are demanding it and will have to be given it if that economy is going to succeed in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the tensions in in the American left, and I talk about this in the book, is the tension between a left demanding more individual freedom, more individual choice uh, for uh, for everybody uh, in, in their sexual preferences, uh, uh, individual, individual freedom for all, regardless of gender, regardless of race. Uh, uh, and that's something that has been a demand of the left throughout its history. At the same time, of course, um, demanding economic uh, equality to the largest extent possible. And, um, uh, and these two things are contradictory, uh, sure. <laughs> because clearly if everyone is going to have, you know, be able to pursue their happiness as consumers, uh, then uh, uh, it's going to be very difficult to to have uh, much higher taxes on the rich and so forth. So you know, I think that's that's a tension uh, in the American left, and it's one that that the left institutionally has not really been able to uh, to resolve. Yeah, indeed. You say that after the Civil War, and I use that in quotes because it wasn't a fight between two sides to take over the country. It was a, a war of independence, a war of secession. Whatever. After that horrible war, aging, and this, uh, I quote here, aging white radicals could just justly celebrate their part in cleansing the nation of its greatest sin and helping to nudge the South into a more enlightened path. Well, I, I'm sure the South would not see it as enlightened particularly, uh, but wasn't that really more wishful thinking and myth than reality? Because, as it turns out, after the war with Reconstruction, the extreme brutality uh, that, that followed that and the redemption that happened, people like William Lloyd Garrison just walked away after the war and ignored all this this horrible brutality and Jim Crow laws that the things actually, in a way, while the institution of slavery was indeed abolished, legally that is, although it continued in many forms, uh, they, it just kind of walked away and, and didn't complete their, their task and let this horrible, brutal racism uh, continue. Well, it was actually split in the abolitionist movement after the war. There were people like Wendell Phillips, for example, who became the head of the anti-slavery society after after Garrison left it, and, uh, and Phillips was was one of the former abolitionists who was very strong for for economic equality. Actually, very very uh, very strong support of labor unions, and and also people like uh, Thaddeus Stevens, who mm. led a failed attempt to uh, confiscate land of leading Confederates and give it to uh, their former slaves. Wow! Uh, so there was a a quite a um, strong but in the end unsuccessful attempt to buy former abolitionists, some in Congress, some outside Congress, like Phillips, to to extend the uh, vision of, of racial equality to uh, much more economic equality, and to really realize that that without some economic independence, without uh, resources in land, especially uh, the former slaves were going to have to, in the end, uh, go back to their former owners uh, for for work on their plantations, and that, of course, is what happened. Yeah, well, the work continued uh, certainly well into the 1960s and it largely uh, achieved its goals. It's not entirely uh, done away with, uh, you know, racial discrimination. 
And moving right ahead through history here, in the 1890s, uh, there was perhaps a turn when, as you say, quote, the collective salvation of wage earners and the poor now took priority over freedom of the self. In 2020 hindsight, wasn't that kind of a poor strategy for the future of the left in America? In what sense? Well, in it, uh, to take uh, priority over freedom of the self, people in America, I think, value freedom of the self very, very much and perhaps haven't always seen the left as being the the champions of of freedom. And in fact, uh, it, it seems that the the word freedom itself has been uh, really co-opted generally by the right, and and the left kind of let it slip by. And I think mm-hmm. I, I wonder if that may have been kind of a mistake in hindsight. Well, yeah, I think it's um, a couple things about that. First of all, as I said before, I think the left continue to talk about individual freedom, but in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, uh, during the Industrial Age, people on the left began to talk more about uh, democracy, uh, industrial democracy, economic democracy. Mm -hmm. Uh, They they argued that uh, most people, at least white men, and and more and more white women, too, by the early 20th century, were able to to vote, but uh, at the workplace, where they spent most of their days, uh, they, they did not have democracy. So it was this gulf between between the promise again of, of America uh, as a democratic country and the reality that that in in their daily lives, uh, which did not involve voting usually, right, <laughs> but right, involved right. working and consuming and um, and living in cities more and more, that uh, most Americans did not have democracy and um, did not have much independence. Uh, were working under bosses who gave them very little uh, choice if they didn't like the work conditions, but to leave and try to find uh, another boss who was somewhat better. Hmm. So I think that was an important uh, turn for, for the left and one which, of course, helped to generate support for, for labor unions um, yes. uh, for, for a time. And I think it's, uh, you know, That's again, I, I think it's wrong to see uh, sort of the, the archetypal, you know, ordinary American as only concerned with individual freedom. I think I think Americans care about about the good of the country as a whole and care about the you know how how people like themselves are doing economically uh and also care of course about about having the opportunity to to get rich if they want to so it's 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 uh often these these two these two kinds of cares that work across purposes but it's not surprising the left wanted to work on both of them i think Economic justice was certainly uh, not really there. And uh, today, not a lot of people know about something you talk about, the Knights of Labor. They enjoyed some, some really unique victories. Why should people know more about the Knights of Labor and perhaps what yeah, they well, accomplished? It's a, it's a very archaic-sounding name, actually. It was, yeah. uh, it was <laughs> meant, to, meant to, to evoke uh, a fraternal organization, which were really very uh, big in America in the late 19th century, the Masons, uh-huh. the Odd Fellows. Knights of Pythias and others. Um, Knights of Labor was a group which was formed uh, in 1869 by a group of textile workers in uh, Philadelphia, but it soon took off uh, because, among other things, it it uh, was a very inclusive organization. Uh, anybody could join the Knights of Labor, including small business people. Um, only people who couldn't join were those who were considered to be parasites on productive Americans. That is, gamblers, liquor dealers, and stockbrokers, <laughs> and also most lawyers. The, the labor lawyers are fine, um, <laughs> and and this this meant that uh, it was much, as much a movement as a union. And uh, but as a union, uh, the the knights were able to uh, sign up a lot of railroad workers and what was then the major 
right. industry in America. And they staged some very successful railroad strikes in the middle of the 1880s, and then they they attempted to uh, uh, call a a, a um, uh, national strike for the eight-hour day, 1886, mm. and. Uh, and that failed for various reasons, and that started the downfall of the Knights of Labor. But for a while there, the Knights of Labor was really looked like it was going to be a, a powerful radical labor movement, as powerful as anything uh, in Europe at the time. And, and they also had a vision, which has been lost, but I think would still be attracted to a lot of Americans, uh, of cooperative industry. Not of socialism, not of the state-controlling uh, controlling industry, controlling business, but of workers themselves at you know, uh, owning owning the, the same business in which they worked, and uh, and this was a quite a common uh, vision among people who were not really radical at the time. But but the Knights of Labor uh, was really the center of of the cooperative movement for a time. Fascinating, and certainly uh, the idea of of worker ownership and participation and management and and how things get made and you know sharing the profits is still very much alive, very much with us, and could even be. Uh, applied to the future, I would think. I think a lot yep, of people yep. would. And you wrote a, a rather interesting, very enlightening book, which I enjoyed thoroughly, on uh, a godly hero, William Jennings Bryan. Tell us a little bit about why Bryan, who was clearly a, a populist, perhaps not with a capital P, but a populist who who was more on the side of the producers than the aristocratic class, why did he lose to McKinley in 1896? And what's the significance of that election in the history of the left? Well, you know, the election was a, was a fascinating election, as, as you know. Maybe, maybe some of the people out there listening know as well, because it was one of the few elections where it really seemed, at least in the rhetoric, to be a sort of class line between the parties. Uh, we don't usually have elections where where you say the producers are against the aristocrats. Of course, that's the way the Democrats and the populists saw it, not the way the Republicans saw it. Um, uh, In brief, the reason why the Republicans won were two. First of all, the Democrats were the incumbent party. And as Barack Obama knows (laughs) very well this year, the incumbent party at a time of economic downturn, there was a Great Depression in the 1890s, Mm -hmm. uh, worse than the the recession we're suffering from now. Uh, The incumbent party is usually blamed by people who are not loyalists, you know, of that party. Um, So that was one of the reasons the incumbent president, Grover Cleveland, was a was by no means a populist, but but he, but he was the president, and so his party was going to be looked at askance by a lot of independent voters, and also. uh, McKinley and the Republican Party were able to draw on almost limited, almost unlimited funds yeah. corporations at a time when there were really no uh, restrictions on yeah. donating campaigns whatsoever. So uh, the Republicans spent from 10 to 12 times more than the Democrats uh, did in that mm. election. And Bryan did his best. He, he spoke all over the country uh, for three months, who were basically without a stop except on Sundays, because he was a, a very... A devout Christian, he wasn't going to campaign on Sundays, but also other times he campaigned 10, 12, 16 hours a day. Mm. But in the end, it, it wasn't enough. In the end, the, the Depression and uh, Republican money and the fact that the Northeast, the industrial part of the country, was um, had the most electoral votes and yep. uh, mm-hmm. saw Bryan as the candidate of the small farmers, uh, that in the end was enough to defeat uh, Bryan. And that that, uh, struggle and definition continues. And I I was reminded, as you were describing all the money on the side of McKinley, I I wasn't sure if it was 1932 or 1934 when Upton Sinclair probably would have become socialist governor of California had it not been for a huge influx of money by the uh, uh, Republicans and the powers that were, the corporate powers back in 
was it 32 or 34, one of those elections. Uh, it was 34, yeah. 34. Uh, we are talking on the Burt Cohen Show with uh, Michael Kazin about his new book, American Dreamers, very well received, American Dreamers, How the Left Changed a Nation. And there has been a uh, program on public television these days about prohibition, alcohol prohibition. Most people today see it as kind of a, a stupid failure because people drank and it wasn't going to work. B- but I wonder if you could tell us about the very important positive role of the Women's Christian Temperance Union and how it really fits on the left. And it wasn't so, uh, it wasn't based on, on stupidity at all. The WCTU, well, I wasn't, it wasn't um, a radical organization the way the Socialist Party and Communist Party no. were. There were different strands within it. But certainly the, the leadership in the 1880s and 1890s, uh, especially their, their very charismatic president, uh, Francis Willard, uh, did steer it in what she what she called as Christian socialist direction, and 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 for her and and for most of the activists in the WCTU, which was the largest women's organization in America, American history up to that point, but 150,000 members uh, all over the country and parts of the world too. For her, uh, temperance was really just one sign of what was wrong in America. Uh, she believed, and many activists in WCTU believed with her that. That what was needed was a, a more moral society, a society in which uh, everybody uh, pitched in to uh, to help one another or altruistically. She thought that what was wrong with with the, with with, with uh, the the business of selling and consuming alcohol was that it led people to be uh, rampant individualists, only care about their own pleasure, only mm-hmm. care about their own individual happiness, um, and not care about. Uh, the waste of wages, not care about uh, the crime and prostitution that were rife in, in uh, districts where, where alcohol was sold and consumed. And, and also, it was in many ways a women's rights movement, because at the time, at least among white Protestants, and that it was mostly a white Protestant organization, WCTU, right. uh, very few women uh, drank, uh, certainly not publicly. Uh, women did not go into bars hmm. in the 1880s. It just was not done. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, this was a way, really, of, of women uh, exerting their strength against uh, what they saw as the uh, uh, sort of male dominance of, uh, of the public sphere. And also, the WCTU was involved in everything, as, uh, as Willard put it. They were involved in prison reform. They tried to help women workers form unions. Uh, they uh, got involved in trying to uh, clean up the cities, uh, trying to get sanitation uh, into poor neighborhoods, for example. So... So for a while, then, in the 1880s, 1890s, it was really the, uh, the leading women's reform organization in America. Fascinating. A lot of people don't know. I mean, history, I, I love it. You know, you learn so much about uh, what's relevant today and what can happen for the future. I should say, by the way, the, the Ken Burns, um, recent Ken Burns yeah. uh, series on public television on Prohibition, uh, I've written about this a little bit. The, they, people had a chance to see that. Uh, the first, the first uh, episode of it, the first hour and a half, was, uh, was excellent. It was about the movement itself, and they really caught that, that aspect of WCTU especially. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was good stuff, and I think people, you know, Ken Burns uh, helps people uh, get into history. Now we move ahead to the First World War. Now the left in America saw it quite reasonably, I think, as an imperialist war between imperial powers wasn't their struggle. Certainly that's what happened in, uh, in Russia. They, uh, they, the proletariat uh, felt that and said, hey, we're out of here. It's not our fight. Now, then the, the left spoke up against the First World War. 
Then came the Palmer raids, the Espionage Act, internal squabbling. Did that really, was that kind of a, a turning point that turned downward for the, the left in America? Was it a really uh, hard, hard blow against the left? I'll let, uh, you know, because uh, the, the government came down pretty hard against people who opposed the First World War. Yes, it was really the first time that the left got a reputation as being unpatriotic. Ah, before that, huh. as we were saying before, the left really identified with uh, American ideals and, and, did, and, never, and never really opposed in a concerted way uh, any war that the U.S. had fought, with a partial exception of the, of the war against the Philippine independence movement. But that was not a very high-profile war for most Americans in the mm. early 20th century. Um, and one of the, the uh, key things that happened as a result of World War One, I, I mentioned this in the book, is that is that between roughly the 1870s and World War One, that 50-year period there, uh, the American left was still certainly didn't represent a majority, but it did have a large contingent of of white uh, working-class Christians, um, and uh, there was many. Uh, believing Christians who were socialists, as there were uh, atheists who were socialists, for example, even though we think of socialism as sort of atheistic uh, philosophy mm-hmm. in many ways. And um, there were lots of socialists in Oklahoma, Nevada, uh, Wisconsin, places like that. After uh, World War I, uh, in part because the Socialist Party declines, and in part because the Communist Party becomes the leading organization on the left, the left gets associated with um, a group the Communist Party, which is beholden to a foreign power, yes. a group which is defending uh, Joseph Stalin when he comes to power mm-hmm. in the USSR. And uh, for most Americans, that's indefensible, even if they didn't know about all the, all the terrible things that Stalin did, but they realized this man was not a, a Democrat uh, with a small d. Um, so this was really a, a turning point in the sense that, that the left, uh, after World War I, does uh, get identified, uh, unfortunately, uh, but not, but understandably, with, uh, uh, with obedience to, to to a foreign power, and if that foreign power is a power that that very few Americans can identify with. We are talking again with Michael Kazin about his new book, American Dreamers: How the Left Changed a Nation. It's published by Knopf, out in uh, hardbound now. Now the 1930s came along, big depression. It, it seemed to me it was very fertile ground for the left. And you mentioned a little bit how uh, the communists were, were seen as, uh, you know, beholden to Stalin. But it's, it also seems to me that the, the left, the Communist Party at the time, was the only ones talking about Social Security and about equality between the races. Uh, but after the crimes of Stalin were revealed, forget it for the, the CP, what was the effect of the Communist Party of the USA on the American left and and? What happened in the 30s? I know we could talk about this for sure, hours. Sure, sure. Well, here, this is, this is a, sort of the, in some ways the best example in the widest gulf between uh, the political marginality of, of the left and, and a much greater cultural influence. Because on the one hand, the communists elected uh, hardly anybody to any office in, in right. America, though they tried. They elected two city councilmen in New York City, a couple very local officials in some little towns uh, in industrial areas, but basically they were a non-entity electorally. Uh, they were influential in the labor movement, but not as communists. They all, they all, the, the influential labor leaders and labor activists hid their membership in the Communist Party because they knew how anti-communist most yeah. American workers were at the time. But culturally, people identif- who were close to the Communist Party, close to the Popular Front, mm-hmm. which was a 
political and cultural um, sort of phase in the history of the communist movement in the late 1930s, people like Dr. Zeus, people like uh, Dorothy Lange, people like John Steinbeck, uh, people like... Um, um, well, the, uh, the Abraham uh, Lincoln Brigade. Reed, who was probably a member of the Communist Party, yeah. had a tremendous impact, I think, on uh, sort of uh, presenting what you might call a sort of left-wing populist view of American history, a left-wing mm-hmm. populist view of what was going on in the country. And as I say in the book, the... The images we still have of the Great Depression that are the most popular images, uh, like Grapes of Wrath, like Woody Guthrie's songs, uh, like uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Frank Capra's famous film, which was written by a communist, <laughs> Sidney Buckman, um, uh, Dorothy Lange's photographs, yes. were all created, I think, uh, by people who were not necessarily members of the Communist Party, uh, though Woody Guthrie probably was, but by people who were Really close to it, who within this popular front uh, orbit, and I think that that shows that uh, you don't have to have power to have influence in in American uh, uh, political mm. life. Absolutely, very very interesting point. Uh, to what degree was the election of Franklin Roosevelt predicated by the strength of the left, or was it more simply a failure of the alternative? And did the, how influential, without having actual political power, was the left in in making? the New Deal become reality and pushing his policies? Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, most importantly, probably, is, is his labor policy, because uh, the left, uh, being, uh, of course, made up of socialists and communists primarily in, in the 30s, was, was uh, its major focus uh, organizationally was going to be on trying to, trying to um, promote uh, labor unionism and, and get uh, workers uh, to have unions which were recognized uh, by their employers and protected uh, by the government. And there was a huge strike wave in 1934, general strikes in Minneapolis, uh, a general strike in San Francisco, or textile strikes up and down uh, the East Coast from, uh, from Massachusetts and, and New Hampshire, actually, down to, down to South Carolina. And mm. uh, many of these strikes were led by radicals, uh, communists and socialists. And, and uh, these strikes really helped to lead to the passage of one of the most important uh, piece of New Deal legislation, the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act in 1935, which for the first time gave uh, workers uh, a right, you know, statutory right uh, protected by the federal government to organize unions and uh, made it more difficult for union organizers to be fired. Uh, And we still, this is the major labor law that uh, labor relations still governed by today. So, and without those 34 strikes, which, which scared a lot of people in Congress, <laughs> uh, it's the best way to put it, into passing the Wagner Act, uh, it might have happened, but it would have happened, it would have been weaker, and it would have happened perhaps later uh, as well. It was, a, it was the, the fear of more of these mass strikes, more radicalization of, of, of uh, working-class America that, that helped to lead to this very important reform. And certainly, uh, as the old saying goes, voting with your feet, getting out there on the streets, showing numbers. Uh, that happened during the war in Vietnam, when the right said we who opposed the war felt pretty patriotic and that what was going on was just uh, against uh, more traditional American principles. Uh, but there were hundreds of thousands, millions of us out on the streets. Uh, it, it seems clear to me that there was a direct causal connection between the massive anti-war movement and, in fact, the end of the war. Uh, I, I oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's some historians argue about this. Some there are some conservative historians who argue that that as the anti-war movement became larger, it also became more unpopular. And so, 
it was a lot of Americans were uh, by the late 1960s opposed the war, but they weren't very happy about what they saw as this anti-American flag burning movement. Uh, people like Gabby Hoffman <laughs> were often seen as the face of the anti-war movement, uh, rightly or wrongly. So, so you know, historians don't agree about the impact of the anti-war movement on ending the war, but certainly I think the anti-war movement helped to make it impossible for further escalation right. to take place because uh, the disruption that would have been caused if if uh, tactical nuclear weapons had been used, uh, if uh, the uh, dikes of the Red River in North Vietnam had been bombed, uh, resulting in wholesale famine. Uh, you know, it was impossible to wage really total war in Vietnam because of the anti-war movement. And that, I think, is, uh, was an important uh, influence of the, of the movement. Interesting how people on the right today blame the left for the U.S. not winning the war. Gosh, darn it, we could have won the war if not for protesters who cared about such silly things like use of nuclear bombs and creating famine in Vietnam. But it also seems clear to me that the people of Vietnam were not going to give up. There was no way they were ever going to give up. Uh, but, you know, moving ahead just a little bit after after seeing the power of the people out in the streets with regard to the war in Vietnam uh, in the 1980s, there was a good chance we could have been involved in El Salvador, more so than we were, had ground troops in there, had actual ground troops in Nicaragua. As it turns out, there were, uh, you know, winks and nods, and, uh, and, and, and the U.S. supported the anti-communist movements there. But I would think that the concern about further protest is the only thing that kept our boys from invading El Salvador and Nicaragua. And conversely, to the current period, the use of drones now uh, means that we can wage war without our boys having to have their boots on the ground. So uh, it certainly seems clear has influenced uh, American military policy quite a bit. And I wonder if the uh, the candidates for president now are uh, part of the backlash, you know, saying, uh, you know, the lesson of Vietnam is to uh, just fight on and you know, to heck with the people and uh, and bomb the heck out of them, bomb them back to the Stone Age. But uh, it, it seems that the influence is still there. And and what about uh, star power? You know, I, I think it's fascinating how Americans are so dependent on, on celebrity. I was a state senator for 14 years, and I'll never forget somebody called me a celebrity. I'm thinking, I'm not a celebrity. But, but, but that's what, I mean, William Jennings Bryan, was a celebrity. He had star yep. power. Eugene Debs may have had some star power. Certainly Martin Luther King, but but very few others. How important is this star power, this charisma, being a really good stage performer, as Brian certainly was, in the history of American electoral politics? It seems to me we need charismatic celebrities as politicians. You have to have somebody with that star power as opposed to their real policies. And how difficult a, a hurdle is that to jump over? Well, it's certainly become more important as we've had mass media. And, uh, I mean, in Brian's day, of course, the only mass medium was, uh, was the press. Film was just in its infancy. There was no radio yet, uh, at least not in 1896. And his celebrity was based on uh, speaking all over the country nonstop for, for about 25 years. But... Right. Um, Certainly with, with uh, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, when you began to have newsreel cameras covering the president uh, on a regular right. basis for the first time a little more than 100 years ago. Uh, since, then, since then, looking good, uh, sounding good once you have uh, uh, radio, 
is is essential. And uh, you know, it's it's inevitable, I guess, that that personality will sometimes trump uh, political yeah. allegiance. But uh, still, I think I'm uh, perhaps because I'm a historian, I tend to see continuities uh, <laughs> as much as discontinuities. And uh, I think that you know, Alexander the Great was a celebrity too, and uh, most people, and he never gave a, he never gave a speech and <laughs> did nothing but uh, take over lots of countries, lots of lands. Uh, but he was on everyone's coins all over the world at the time. So, you know, I think uh, once you have when you have leadership, um, especially leadership which, as you say, is is seen as charismatic, uh, you know, then it's going to have an outsized importance in not just elections but also in, in popular movements. One of the things a lot of people have been interviewing me uh, about the Occupy Wall Street oh, we'll get uh, there. demonstrations recently, and uh, one thing everyone asks is, "Well, where are the leaders? Where are the leaders? They right. must be. They must have a leader. Why don't they?" Why don't they have a leader? And uh, I, I tell them to talk to the people who are occupying, but I'm not. But, but uh, you know, this can also be a trap because, of course, once you have a leader, then that leader, once mm-hmm. they are seen as having uh, flaws, which, of course, every leader, like every human being does, then, then uh, those flaws become the movement's flaws. That's a very good point. If you just tuned into the Burt Cohen Show, we're talking with author Michael Kazin about his new book, American Dreamers, How the Left Changed a Nation. And one of the differences between uh, the rest of the Western world, I think, and the United States, there's no class consciousness here. Unlike virtually all other Western nations, there's just no sense of class consciousness. We have regionality, ethnic, race, religion. But I would think that that in of itself would necessitate a different left from, from all other countries, which have a sense of class consciousness, that we have to be different because we don't have a class consciousness mm-hmm. here. Well, I mean, I actually, I wrote a whole book uh, called The Populist Persuasion, which was <laughs> about, about populism both on the left and the right. And I think in some ways what we have instead of the kind of class consciousness there is in some parts of the world where people believe that the class into which they're born is the, is the class in which they'll probably die, which I think is actually changing as well. But, but traditionally that was the way a lot of people felt in Europe is in Japan and, and Latin America and elsewhere. Instead of in that, I think we have, we have populism, various kinds of populism, where, where there is it's a kind of class consciousness in the sense that it's you know, the majority of hardworking, patriotic people against this evil parasitic elite. I mean, I think that is the kind of social consciousness, if you will, that we have. Uh, and you can see it on the right, with mm. like Sarah Palin, you know, talk about all these uh, overeducated uh, people who don't know how to skin a moose <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and don't work for a living and, and go to fancy colleges. And on the, mm. on the left, of course, you see it right now with the 99% first one. That's people, right. Occupy Wall Street people are talking about. These are both kinds of populist consciousness, I think, though they, of course, uh, turn to different purposes. So in that sense, I think we do have a kind of moral uh, social consciousness, a moralist, you might say, or even moralistic. But uh, it's based much more on a sense of the, the great majority of the people. It's the people. It's not a class. It's the people. And the people don't like being uh, exploited by a small, unproductive minority. Ah, oh, interesting. That, that I sense a little bit of, dare I say, hope there. <laughs> And certainly, I think Pat Buchanan, back in 1992, was absolutely right. There is a culture war for the soul of America. There was That was there in the spirit of the IWW, people like uh, Allen Ginsberg and Kerouac and Woody Guthrie. And it does seem to me that in terms of the culture war, hey, we have really won. We have feminism, same-sex marriage, environmentalism, universal acceptance— uh, appeal of the American culture, including rock and roll, which is 
part of the culture war, but, you know, oh my, integration of the races among the teenagers, oh my, we basically won. Doesn't it, Michael, doesn't it, culture, doesn't it really set the foundation? Isn't that more uh, a priority that, that shared culture is at the foundation and then that political change follows cultural change? What do you think about that? Well, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, you know. That's <laughs> a problem. Yeah. I think you're definitely right, and I make this point in the book, of course, which is that some causes that used to be identified really with the left, like gay liberation, which right. uh, even the term was taken from black liberation, even from national liberation uh, in the third world, that has not succeeded uh, in every particular, but of course it's, it's uh, much more accepted uh, than ever was. Uh, oh, most yeah. Americans uh, in polls support you know, gay marriage now, which is oh, quite yeah. extraordinary if you think about it. Huge difference. Uh, it's only been 40-something years since uh, the Stonewall Rebellion in New York in '69. Right. Which is you know beginning of a sort of mass liberation movement for homosexuals and, and lesbians, uh, as you say, feminism, uh, sort of multicultural education, environmentalism, uh, and other kinds of and racial equality as well. I mean, uh, this was something that you know when in the 1960s uh, you would not have believed Impossible. would have been possible, <laughs> right? But but at the same time, saying that uh, also shows the limits, I think, of, of of cultural change because after all, economic policies are those of of conservative. Uh, uh, libertarians, that uh, people who want uh, uh, rich people to pay uh, fewer taxes, actually, than, <laughs> than poor people. That's what would happen with a 9% sales tax and only 9% income tax, which is what we're proposing. Oh, yeah. And, and in general, you know, in the end, political economy uh, matters. It matters, uh, you know, what people's wages are, of course. It matters what taxes people pay. And, and, and cultural change uh has not affected those things, uh, certainly in the 20th century, as mm. much as it has uh, issues of uh, gender and, uh, and race and sexual identification. So, uh, Well, I guess it's easier to make cultural change than real political well, change, quite frankly. Well, issues, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think when, I mean, one, of the way, one of the reasons you got a welfare state, a larger welfare state in Europe, I think, is because there was cultural change there, too. There were huge numbers of working people who were who were joining organizations, reading books uh, and pamphlets that uh, argued for a different kind of society. Yeah, your book, uh, American Dreamers, How the Left Changed a Nation, came out just before Occupy Wall Street. And you suggested uh, in your book that the left had already reached it, its nadir. Now we have Occupy Wall Street. No definition, no clear agenda. And in, in your book, you often cite how evangelical fervor uh, on the right as as important to the left, do we see this kind of uh, evangelical f- fervor rising with the spread of Occupy Wall Street? Yeah, I mean, I think I, th- I think it is. It's as you say, it's it's a little inchoate right now, and um, yeah, uh, there's it's as often as true with a with a new movement, especially about, about addressing something as large <laughs> and serious uh, and pervasive as the economic crisis, uh, which is an economic crisis which is worldwide, not just not just in this, in this country. Uh, it's not surprising that people will, uh, who take part in this will be taking part for different kinds of reasons. But in general, I think, I think there is an um, evangelical fervor to, to either make the country more economically uh, egalitarian or to return the country to a, a time when people believe it was more economically egalitarian. And, uh, and so here you, you do have, a, in some ways, this is a return to some of the preoccupations of the left uh, Really, before World War One, uh, you might say, or even, or at least in the 1930s, um, at a time when when the, the left populist fervor was was almost entirely 
directed against uh, Wall Street, against uh, the heads of big corporations. And this was really when there began to be demands for for an income tax, first of all, and then for a much more progressive income tax. Right. I'm remembering some of the old uh, uh, political cartoons of having, you know, the big, fat, you know, corporate elite and the poor little guy. And, and here's this theme uh, still going on. And, and it does seem that they have taken, they meaning the, the, the corporate elite, the Wall Street people, it's, it's pretty identifiable as, yeah, yeah. you know, that, that... Yeah, I mean, it's funny because there really isn't this... There really, we, don't, we, don't, we, we haven't really got an iconic image of, <laughs> of the big tycoon the way it used to have. I mean, it's, uh, uh, I think the New Yorker had a cover recently of uh, some sort of 19th century-looking tycoons in a, in a rowboat as, a, as they got away from the ship, which was sinking. Yeah. But, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's still, it seems a little, a little uh, I think, archaic to think of... of uh, Wall Street uh, tycoons with pot bellies and uh, wearing spats and <laughs> and uh, and vests and and with top hats on their heads. Uh, but but, but people still it's still the only image we have. That's <laughs> true. It is, it is the only image. But people are getting it. I mean, I I am seriously impressed. I mean, it's catching on. People are getting it. It seems like this whole populist notion of you know, hey. Who does the government work for? The the very few super wealthy or the other ninety nine percent? It's back, <laughs> and yeah, and yeah, it, I agree. But but of course it's it's also um, on the right as well as people on the left who, as you say, you can talk this way. I, I was down at this you know fairly small um, demonstration in Washington over the weekend, and there was a fairly sizable Ron Paul contingent. There. Well, I, I also wonder about the Tea Party and the whole populist thing of the 1890s. Is the Tea Party kind of an inheritor of some kind of of that spirit to some extent? Well, yes and no. I mean, I see the Tea Party differently. I've written about this. I think I see the Tea Party more as the inheritor of, uh, and uh, not the inheritor, the, the, the continuator of, the, uh, of, 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 a, of a grassroots conservative movement that's really been around um, since the 1950s in many ways. Uh, it got very strong with the tax revolt of the late 1970s. It's in many ways a revolt of the haves more than a result of the have-nots. <laughs> that is, uh, as you probably remember, the Tea Party got its start when the CNBC uh, reporter Rick Santelli uh, was uh, ranting on the, on the uh, floor of the Commodity Exchange, I think, in Chicago against helping people out who... Uh, who were losing their houses through a foreclosure. Mm. So that's not the way we think of most economic <laughs> populist movements. Uh, uh, and uh, as the Tea Party, and of course also from the first, Tea Party was well connected uh, through the Koch brothers' financing, oh, yeah. through uh, but the people office, who uh, group Freedom Works, uh, through you know, fairly long-lasting uh, conservative Republican connections and networks. But, and, but, uh, but the, the people who are drawn to the Tea Party may not be aware of that, and, and they seem to be mad as heck and you know at the same people at the at who is the government working for i mean they're drawn sometimes to it. that's true sometimes that's certainly true but yeah. but they're also the demographic and polls that uh dominate the tea party are older people usually over 45 people who have been voting republican almost 80 percent i think voted yeah. for john mccain uh yeah. in the last election that i saw and uh they they tend to be churchgoers for example. So this is really a Republican demographic. Well, let's look a little bit ahead. I, I found uh, in, in reading your book, fascinating book, uh, American Dreamers, How the Left Change a Nation, something you referred to, the Freedom Budget, as was proposed by Baird Rustin in 1966, as I found that to be a vision which can be remarkably attractive for the future. Uh, I don't know if you recall what, what that Freedom Budget was, but it seemed to be uh, things that a lot of people could relate to. 
Well, yeah. I mean, anyway, it was a much fuller welfare state than we have now. It would have guaranteed everyone a job. Right. <laughs> Government would have had to provide a job if uh, they didn't have jobs through public works programs of various kinds. And would have been uh, single-payer, national health insurance, you know, uh, Medicare for all, in effect. Um, Medicare just been passed. Would have uh, had a, a right to, to, to decent housing, uh, for example. So it would have been really beyond what uh, you have in uh, in Europe, and a lot of liberals, uh, people who now think of the liberals, signed on to it. Martin Luther King Jr., who I think was actually radical, not a liberal, was very supportive of it, and uh, uh, it was uh, it was quite a far-reaching plan. But this is the war in Vietnam was escalating. Uh, right. Most young people, like me, on the left at the time, much more interested in in what the U.S. was doing overseas, and uh, considered people like Baird Rustin uh, sort of a man of the past. Unfortunately, I think mm. he's wrong, but but that was the uh, that was the consciousness at the time. Interesting, and people can uh, can read about it in there. And as we head uh, into the unknown territory of the rest of the 21st century, could it be, Michael, that there is emerging a new direction in the left, which is in keeping with the history and tradition of America, in the face of this concentration and centralization of power and wealth and authority, the idea of decentralization of power? Uh, be it electric power, I mean, we go back to the no-nukes thing, you know, and economic decision-making, some kind of a, a decentralization. You mentioned in the book that uh, Janice Radway, President of the American Studies Association, dismissed the very notion of a bonded national territory and a, and a concomitant national identity, and it was kind of hinting at decentralization of power, authority, and decision-making. I wonder if that may be uh, the future. Looking in the crystal ball, Michael Kazin, what do you think? Well, um, I guess I'm of two minds about it. On the one hand, yes, I think you're right, and, I, and I've written about this, and I think it's, it was a mistake in many ways for people on the left to put so much faith in Barack Obama's campaign and really think yes. that you know, a brand new day was going to dawn because we had a new president. Which <laughs> presidents presidents are not, are not uh, uh, leftists. They can't be. They are not reformers, really, either, uh, without being pushed from below. That's, That's the history right. of America. That was true of FDR, it was true of Lyndon Johnson, and it's true of Obama as well. So, so people on the left uh, were, made a mistake to put too much faith in, in electing a new yes. president. That was one, one problem. And, and when the left was stronger, it did create its own institutions, local institutions, unions, uh, settlement houses, uh, women's groups, uh, immigrant rights groups, civil rights groups, and so forth. Um, I think that's true. On the other hand, uh, and of course states also have been what what Louis Brandeis called the laboratories of democracy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, trying out different kinds of ideas. Like Vermont, I believe, is going to have a single-payer system. That's right. Uh, which, if that works, maybe that will, you know, help to promote that idea in other states. But um, same time, there are certain things that you need a national government for, I think. Uh, infrastructure spending, for example, and uh, um, unemployment compensation, and, and uh, corporate regulation. Because individual states, you know, and localities, for that matter, can't really regulate huge corporations that are not just uh, national but international. Yeah, so yeah. in that sense, sort of too much localism, <laughs> uh, I think, would be a mistake because uh, the economy is not, is not operated locally for the most part. Fascinating. New book, American Dreamers, How the Left Changed a Nation. It's available from Knopf, Michael Kazin. Thank you so much. It's a fascinating subject, and uh, we'll continue to make history. Uh, I enjoyed it, Bert. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. I take two.